Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is called The National Gallery, and it contains sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies lamenting the death of my iPhone, and other strange missives from yours truly, the Poet Laureate of Hell. Visit thenationalgallery.ca to order your signed copy. That's thenationalgallery.ca. I don't know if I told you this before, but my big thing this year is I've devoted myself to a little bit of professional development insofar as if I've got certain problems... Like, my problem is, you know, I can't do X or I don't have enough Y or whatever. I've got some problem, and then to solve the problem, normally my normal way of doing things is I try to figure out the way that I would solve the problem. And then work on you. And it's always some overcomplicated thing. I'm trying to learn from scratch, like figure out everything in the history of the world. And like apply it to my situation. What I decided to do this year is just, I'm just going to ask somebody who solved the problem for them. I'll do exactly what they say. (laughs) And then in a year, I'll modify it. But for a year or whatever, I'm just going to do exactly what they say. Assume they're right, even if I think they're wrong, just because I don't want to have the time to think about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the expert syndrome, right? You, you, you can get in, definitely get into the habit of, if you're a self-starter, saying, oh, I'll just do it myself. And then you spend so much time learning and researching things that other people already could have told you were true if you just took for granted that they were right. Yeah, and maybe they're not right. But they're going to start from a position of being more right than me is the gap. And even if they're totally wrong, at least I don't have to worry about it so much. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is you just want to. Um, I don't. I can blame them, not me. You're outsourcing your worry. I'm trying to as much as I can, or mm. just like I just I don't know. I'm just trying to do new things this year. You know, like I'm trying to do this comic stuff and doing other things. I've decided. I've just decided. Like um, I just don't have time to like think too much about it. <laughs> like I need to like just decide when to do X and then just do that and see how it goes uh, just assess how it's been going in six months and if I got a question about it like like for this comic stuff if I got a question I'll just ask you and Lyndon and I'll just do what you guys say <laughs> you know if well, I don't have a question I'll figure it out myself well that seems perfectly reasonable because uh, we never make mistakes right but even if you are making mistakes <laughs> what difference you know what I mean like who cares it's at least I've got something done and I can figure it out I can look back at it in six months and think oh I should have done this instead yeah, it gets you some momentum. Well, my problem... Yeah, I get analysis paralysis, you know, like I get, like, I got to figure out the perfect way to do things. This podcast is a good example. Like, I didn't start, I was going to do a podcast for seven years and I didn't do it. And then finally I was like, you know what, I'm just going to fucking do a podcast. I, I went online, I found some like web page that said like, hey, for beginner podcasts, buy this microphone download this thing, sign up to this service, do this thing. I put like $200, $300 just into like buying a microphone and setting up this thing and that thing. 
and just doing what this article said. And I, I, and I was like, I probably, it, you know, there's better ways to do it, but at least now I've done it, something. Well, it could not have hurt that uh, uh, Sam Biko and Claire Marshall did their podcast, and then um, Justin and I were doing ours, and we just went for it. And it worked out okay. I mean, Sam and uh, Sam and Claire, of course, uh, uh, the Business BFFs podcast was a little bit better produced right off the hop than maybe what Justin and uh, Dan and I were trying to do. But we were also kind of approaching it as a lo-fi, learn-as-we-go experiment in public. Yeah, see, I, I feel like I don't do enough of those. At least I'm trying to do more of them the last like year and a bit. Like just do more like diving in and just doing something and assessing it kind of, you know, after the fact and build it more, you know. Because I, I can be very perfectionist is my sort of problem. I mean, it's good too. Like it's a strength and a weakness, right? It depends how it's being applied. You know? I, I think it's more often a strength than a weakness, but it does, like you say, you get into that uh, – uh, you get into a perfection trap where you tell yourself, well, I could do better, so I, I won't start until I can do better. I was reading a book uh, recently by this guy, uh, Dean Wesley Smith is his name. He's like a kind of pulp style writer. But he um, had this thing, uh, I think I might have sent it to you, Lynn, but he had this thing of like writers who don't, who like tinker endlessly with stuff. He's kind of going off Robert Heinlein's rules about writing um, and that rule of like you, you should not edit except to editorial order right that's the Highland thing you must finish what you start you should not edit except to editorial order and I'm not familiar with that what do you mean by that do you remember those Highland rules I've never I've never seen them oh Robert, so you know who Robert Highland is yeah for sure yeah Starship Troopers so baby yeah, Highland had these rules that for writers. He was asked at one point to write an article on writing stuff, and at the end of it, he says, "Here are the five rules for writers, and this is how you have a career as a writer. If you do just five things, however, almost nobody will do them." <laughs> so, and, he, and his rules are: one, you must start; uh, two, you know, like you must write. I think is the precise thing he says. Two, you must finish what you start. Three, you must refrain from rewriting except to editorial order. Uh, four, you must put your work on the market. Five, you must keep it on the market until it is sold. Uh, and he kind of points out like how, you know, is especially, of course, relevant for the pulp writers, but he points out how kind of like almost no writers will do any of these and certainly, very few will do all five. But in his view, you had to do all five to have a career as a writer. The one people get hung up on is that you must not rewrite except editorial order. The one I get the most uh, hung up on is the you must finish. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, what Smith points out in his like little treatise on these rules is he says, you know, writers... Who, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but he says something along the lines of writers who never finish, who are perfectionist writers, like I have the instinct of being, says they don't see not finishing as failure uh, when they should. They should see not finishing as failure. Instead, they work endlessly. He's like, so you think you're writing, you think you're being a writer, because you're always writing. He's like, but if you're not finishing, you're effectively um, not a writer. Like, you have effectively failed by not finishing, as opposed to I finished and then therefore it didn't turn out I wanted, so I failed. 
he says like the problem it's an interesting take you know that he has with it well but anyway, okay but it's not it's, it's, trap it's more than it's more than interesting it's absolutely true you get into this um, hamster wheel of feeling productive simply by putting words down but that doesn't actually get you anywhere it just brings the next step of the wheel in front of you right you need to you need to make the project finish the project and then decide what to do with it after not decide whether you finish it which I never really thought too much about but like it's an interesting because so again just kind of run through the rules this is kind of I didn't know you never heard of these rules it's interesting so of course you know there's the you must write like the first one I think that's pretty self-explanatory but like did you ever struggle with that like that idea of or it could, for you it could also be you must draw I guess right like you draw and you write well you have to remember that I, I didn't ever when I first started doing creative pursuits I doodled but I didn't draw um, seriously or with any idea that it would be professional um, I just did it as a way to order my thoughts and then I would hit the keyboard um, so writing was my first love, if you will, uh, creatively. Um, and that was never a problem for me. I was sitting down to start a project, to get an idea out, even to finish. I would write what we now recognize as, uh, or now call flash fiction. I used to write flash fiction almost daily when I was in my, uh, like anywhere from grade five right up until grade nine or ten. I would write almost daily a complete finished idea or story that was like, you know, between 500 and 1,000 words. And that to me was just fun exercises in writing. Um, and I finished. And the thing about having, uh, the idea was I'm going to write until I'm almost out of time to write and then I'll end it. Sure. And it wasn't part of a practice. It wasn't part of a uh, um, any kind of thoughtful exercise in trying to develop skills as a writer it was just I enjoyed the practice of writing I enjoyed doing it I enjoyed letting my imagination run out and but I also enjoyed the constraint of you know it's an hour before dinner or it's um, an hour before school or it's an hour that I would rather not be studying for my chemistry exam right any of those things were good excuses to write a short little piece of flash fiction um, and then call it a day. And sometimes I would rewrite, I would read a comic and the core theme or idea in it I found really interesting. Uh, and then I would try to rewrite a story that had that central idea in a short little snippet also. So like by more specifically, let's say I read an Iron Man comic and the theme was about, uh, you know, the rampant dangers of technology and morality. Deep down, that's what the comic might have been about, some mad scientist. I would take all of the pieces that were Tony Stark and his armor and, you know, maybe Iron Monger, the villain. I'd strip all that out and I'd leave only the core idea of a, um, a mad scientist with an idea that everyone tells him is dangerous, but he's going to make it no matter what. And then when he finally makes it, turns out it was dangerous after all. Um, and just write a story around that core idea sort of rewrite like fan fiction without any of the elements that would be recognizable as the source material and I mean like things like fan fiction or flash fiction are all terms that I now know as an adult writer professional writer that I didn't know then those these were just like me having fun you know 
I look in retrospect at what we called that, but I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time. What, what I think is interesting about the injunction you must write, you know, so the, the, the number one rule for Highland is, you know, is I think the basic rule in many ways for anyone, you know, you must write if you want to be a writer. What I see a lot of, and this is a sort of a thing that I, is a bit of a bugbear for me, um, because like you, I, I, I kind of came to writing fairly easily and naturally in that sense. I struggle with it more now than I used to just because of, uh, you know, I have so many more demands on my time and responsibilities than, of course, you do when you're younger. But it's still a thing that I think is, um, I, I, you know, once in a while I just remind myself of it, but I do think it's the paramount thing. Like, you have to be writing. And th- the bugbear I have about it is a lot of people, and there's this attitude that I don't agree with at all, that certain things are writing. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is writing, and this is writing, and this is writing. But only writing is writing, in my view. Like, research is not writing. Correct. You and I agree on that. Work and thinking about it is not writing. Correct, yeah. It's not that those are not important, but they are not writing. Well, it's the same way. If you're going to make... Okay, so in lockdown, uh, my culinary skills, limited as they are, have been put to the test. Uh, If you're going to make soup, you got to cut the carrot up, right? Um, That's part of making soup. But growing the carrot is not part of making soup. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It is. You might grow the carrot for lots of reasons, but that's right. And so, but you know, it's just maybe a trite example. But the idea is that going for a walk is not writing; it's growing the carrots. It's a good metaphor, I think. It's not that that's not important. Yeah, it's, it's not that you shouldn't do it. Definitely you know, important. It's better you to grow those carrots and buy them from the store, and they taste better, etc. Right? Yeah. But um, it, it is not the same thing. And so, like you have, I think if you can only do one thing, <laughs> again, you got to do the first thing, which is write. Like if I don't have time to research, I should just write and then research later. Uh, you know what I mean? If I don't have time to grow the carrots, as it were, I should buy a carrot from a store or, you know, find something or make hamburgers, you know, or whatever. Like, like there's just got to be, well, and, I and, can't feel like you've got to eat. And if we swing back around to the original <laughs> example, like when I was uh, younger and doing those little bits of flash fiction, what I was doing essentially was buying the ingredients from the store. I would read somebody else's work of prose in comics, Right. And then I would take that core ingredient and, and cook it in a different way, right? I wasn't sitting down to try and come up with an original idea because I wasn't thinking about it as, here, I'm going to write for a commercial market in grade seven. That was not my thought. My thought was creating ideas and stories are fun. Man, that comic really got my imagination fired up. What are the things that got my imagination fired up? I'd make a little list. Can I make a story that does the same thing? I like the cooking comparison because I think there's always like you can get a recipe right you know when you're cooking food right. you can follow the recipe there's, there, there are like formulas you can use that will work and you can produce a horror story if you do these things or whatever and I think like the thing that people uh, people like I feel like it's important to learn that stuff first like before you start trying to do these other things like I, I'm kind of I'm very you know a person who's known for experimental things or taking a strange approach but I really you know firmly believe that that's something you do later <laughs> you know like or at least you can do it in versions of it earlier I think there's certain ways in which 
we should encourage people to be doing unusual things early or just giving them like a wider range of tools and maybe we you know tend to give yeah you shouldn't write the road until you've written blood meridian yeah and and i just think there's a way in which um i I just really bristle whenever i hear people talk saying things like you know staying out the window was still writing you know (laughs) it's like no it's like you can do that it's not a bad idea but it isn't right. So, like, if you can only do one thing, and, and you have to make that space for writing. Like, I just feel like you have to have that space in your life See, my, that is for writing. My conceit is that many people misattribute their need for um, self-reflection as writing. Yes. And so when people say, I'm sitting, I'm looking out the window, that's my writing time. You know, I think that it's, it's a, you know, you could argue that this is just a semantics thing, but what you're actually saying is in my life, I need more self-reflection. If I call it writing, people will leave me alone to self-reflect. Therefore, looking out the window, which is self-reflection, is writing time, which I can uh, create a solid boundary for in my life. People will say, "Leave him alone. He's writing." But you don't need it. No, sense, like that's what I'm I saying. I write without the self-reflection. It's maybe not going to be as good. It maybe would be good, better. Like I think, like there's this level at which um, I, I feel like I don't know. Like I don't. I think you and I probably agreed to some level on this, but I've always felt like there's this craftsperson approach. Like my my thing I always say is. Um, Writing is a craft. Not writing is not an art. Is what I like to say. It's not an art. It produces art. It's a craft process that can produce literature, which is an art. You know, literature is an art form. Writing is not an art form. Writing is digging ditches. You can dig a ditch. Uh, you got to put in the hours. When you're done, the ditch is dug. It could be a beautiful like. Could ditch. be a Roman aqueduct <laughs> or a ditch in your backyard. Yeah, sure. You know what I mean? Like, there's you know. Maybe if you have all the time for the self-reflection and so on, then that's um, uh, like the thing with the Heinlein approach too is like he's he's kind of coming at it from the point of view of do you want to be a professional writer and like and his contention is that you know whether you're writing good or bad you have to write well and so in order to be able to do these other things which you know can, can will make a career in writing like you know down the line selling your work to a market and so on. So I think an important clarification all is that idea of writing not chasing the market etc yeah I think an important clarification I want to make about what I said before is that I believe good writing is built out of introspection that's true yeah but introspection time and writing time are separate disciplines to me yeah that's exactly and so I can problem with conflating the two I carry around a sketchbook everywhere I go, a quote-unquote sketchbook. I write all kinds of snippets of dialogue, little bits of plot diagrams, whatever, um, things I'm thinking about. I try to be introspective in my notebook in, in short sips between two minutes long and an hour long, and I collect all that. And then when it's time to write, I don't try to start from scratch. I go and look in the recipe book. Well, the other thing I think is like, once you're sitting down and you have you're trying to write now, it's writing time. The introspection now kills you. Absolutely. Yeah. It just becomes critique. You just start self-criticizing what you're doing. Like it, it kills the flow of it. I, I that's why I think, like you say, 
they are separate things. They're both very important, but I think it's healthy to keep them separate, you know, and to try to understand like the need for um, that writing time where you're just um, writing and you're not doing these other things that are going to, you know, kill the momentum of the writing and so on. You were saying you also have like, like me have a problem finishing what you start in some degree. To some degree, yeah, I end up starting more things than I finish, uh, partially because if I can't build up some momentum, I find uh, it hard to maintain a confluence of thought. And so sometimes, but it doesn't matter where I build up the momentum. So sometimes I can build up, build up that momentum in a project that I'm not sure what it's for, but it really gets me excited to just get writing. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to get into that. And the moment it's I don't have the next word, I can switch to another project, but I've gotten myself up to enough speed that now I'm being productive in drawing. They, they call those warm up pages. So you, you try not to do professional illustration work. I, not the collective you, but like yeah. a, a pretty common, um, colloquial idea in illustration is that you do warm up pages first. You don't try to do your best work cold on the table. You sit down, you loosen up, you get your muscle memory together, you draw some things that are fun, and you get some momentum in the illustration muscles before then you go for it. And I mean, it's exactly the same thing as, uh, you know, you don't play professional sports without a warm-up or you'll hurt yourself, right? In, in drawing, it's very similar. There's a lot of muscles at work in your arms, your back, your neck, your hands. You don't want to just go for broke. Uh, you need to warm up before it comes as easily as you hope it will. I've heard of a similar concept called morning pages. Um, I forget if it's Annie Lamott or Natalie Goldberg or who it is exactly that kind of coined this, but the, the idea of doing those, these sorts of warm-up pages that aren't really project-specific or aren't really meant to be used but kind of are just getting you going and kicking you in that daily practice of writing something. Uh, and so on. Now, I've never really done them myself because I just have other things to write. <laughs> like, I, like, but I think, and I just don't want to add more writing to my life that's not already. Uh, okay, but look, at, I do so much writing already. <laughs> I, I, I know you well enough to know that when you sit down to do, say, journalism related writing, that is your morning pages. Right? In it's, some ways, yeah. It's I collecting just, yeah. other people's well, ideas in a cohesive way so that you can, you're flexing your editorial muscle without having to explain, flex your creative one until you have creative time and then you can let her rip. I mean, you might not know that about yourself, but I see it in the work that you do. You know, you've spent enough time in our studio working that I see that process at work in you. Yeah. I never thought about it, but that is kind of what I do. I'll just, I'll like warm up with stuff for other people because it's more of a formula. That and just kind of like you, you know, you're kind of doing the same sort of things all the time. Well, not only that, if you're doing work for other people, they've told you what the indicator of success is, so you know what that threshold is, and you can tell yourself, "Oh, great, I've done that, I've accomplished that. I am a writer. I am accomplishing my my uh, important task." When you are self-directing the writing, you don't have that rubric, and it can be a much more of a challenge. And so, having a little bit of creative. Um, Impetus is a much uh, a much healthier way to do it. Well, I'll just go back to the idea of finishing. When you're doing it for yourself, you don't always have that deadline. You don't have to have like the person coming at you wanting the thing by such and such a date. So 
I think finishing is a very um, amorphous concept when you're working for yourself. What I've taken to doing with this is I'll just give myself these sorts of deadlines that are like internal deadlines. So by which, you know, I, like I did this recently with um, the thing you and I are working on, this uh, eye collector graphic novel uh, series thing. I uh, had this, because so I, I wrote all the script and then I, you know, had to revise it. Uh, and I, you know, I, I will fall into the trap normally of revising and revising and revising and revising. And I'm trying to get out of the trap in recent years. Like, I developed more of a systemic process for revising. But one of the things um, I did, like, one of the things I do in the revision process is I'll set a date by which I'm no longer allowed to revise it. Like, I have to submit it somewhere by such and such a date. And at that point, it's done, whether I think it's done or not. I'm not allowed to touch it again. So that's kind of how I get around the Highland thing. In, in the matter of speaking, is like I will write quite a lot, and I'll be very—I'll kind of like give myself this window in which I'm allowed to be a perfectionist. And once that window closes, I can no longer be a perfectionist, and I'm not allowed to touch it. I can't look at it. Like this eye collector stuff, I won't look at it again until somebody comes back to me. Uh, either you're sending me pages, or somebody's asking, responding to a pitch I sent, or whatever. I won't look. I'll, I'll specifically not touch that file again um, even though I really have the urge every day to dive into it and change more things because I know I'll just go forever well and it's yeah it's interesting that you say that because I see one of the things that I think may um, may be really gratifying or satisfying for you in working on these comics is that uh, the very process of scripting and then waiting for art and then lettering and then rereading and then making allows you to make lots of changes that all culminate into a finished project um, because the thresholds you can't go backwards on right once you have the script and then I illustrate that page well you can't change the script now because I already illustrated the page but you might now when you see the dialogue adjust the dialogue to better fit the art or adjust the exposition to better fit the art but even that that moves you a step towards completion in each stage Same with books when you get the proof so once I get that proof in you see, know it's um, okay I can only do so many changes see the difference I diff- can't change like the order of the stories I can't change like whatever you know well and I so the difference to me uh, as someone who also has a prose novel out that just came out uh, Automatic Age for the dear listener um, that prose novel it was much more difficult to decide it was finished because I didn't have those natural breaks in comics you work literally a page at a time to decide upon completion but in prose if you go back and you change a single line at the beginning if you're trying to tighten that thread of prose now through the entire manuscript it might require you to go in and change say 40 pages you know, if you change somebody, the color of something or the smell of something or the sound of something or the phrase or the gender of a character or any of those things, you have this constant ripple effect to the edge of the pond where a tiny change goes through the whole manuscript. And, and for me, it was very intoxicating to be able to change all of that whenever I wanted. 
and to get out of the habit of doing that was the hard part. And I think that's why Automatic Age, the why my sort of debut prose work is these is a collection of very short novellas because it allows me to be finished to add illustration that is also finished it locks it once I add an illustration it locks those elements of prose into place um, and makes them immutable because now I'll have to change the illustration if the illustration is representative or uh, indicative or informative to some part of the prose I can't change the prose without changing the illustration and I can't change the illustration without changing the prose so you have to be really careful but once it's there now it's locked and I really enjoyed that locking mechanism to allow me to move forward. Um, I have two, three, maybe four dusty old novels that I just can't figure out how to lock. Um, and it might have just been a factor of you have to write, you know, 500 terrible pages before you can write a dozen good ones. So that is also what's at play in those novels. But... Um, I've reached a place in my own process now where I understand my own ability to abandon, you know, because it's abandoned more than finish, when I can abandon the work and carry on with the momentum. Now, what do you think about this Heinleinian rule, which is the controversial one? Um, you must not rewrite except editorial order. Again, like the way I... Well, I, who's giving that editorial Bob order? Robert Heinlein is saying... No, 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 I understand. What I'm saying is who, who is the origin of the editorial order okay. in his example? The, 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 in his, so what it is is somebody has bought your story right? and they are giving you instruction on how to rewrite it. Do not rewrite until that point, is what he says. Okay, so all things being equal, if you write all the time and you finish what you write, then I 100% agree with him. If you're, jo- if you're planning to do writing as a job. If you're doing writing as introspection, write as many drafts as you want because you're writing a draft on your life. If you're trying to create a thing that's separate from your life, which is what a book is, um, then yes, you should wait until the feedback of that publication source comes in. Because what's the point? If you, cha- if you send it out for submission... And then you rewrite it. When the submission notes come back, if they say, we love this, and you say, I've rewritten it, now that is not a good position to be in. I I used to flip-flop on this. I've settled, I think, now on that idea in many ways because I feel like people focus on what he's not saying as if he had said something. So he's not, so he says, you must finish what you write. And then he says, you know, don't rewrite it past that point except to editorial order. Uh, what I think is kind of trips a lot of people up in there is, again, my impulse is the perfectionist. You should rewrite it, you should rewrite it, you should rewrite it. But I think, like, again, like, if it's not, once it's finished, like, once it's actually at a point where it's, say, good enough to send out, I, I think at that point, it, it, it is what it is. <laughs> and you and I talked about this before, but, like, I have this idea that, like, the thing is what it is. Once you get to the point where it is what it is, people will accept it or reject it because they want that thing or they don't want it. And then after, and, and there's no, like, change you could make that would affect its market ability. Like, if it's zombie orgies on the moon, well, maybe, you know, 
somebody wants to publish Zombie Origins of the Moon or they don't. Right. You know, you know what's amazing is that I immediately came up with, uh, as soon as you said that, I could see the cover layout and design perfectly. <laughs> and I you feel, I mean, like, and I can guarantee you that if you wrote whatever novel you wrote, if you named it Zombie Orgies on the Moon and you made it a really, really powerful cover design, you could sell a lot of copies of Zombie Orgies on the Moon even if there wasn't a single sexual piece of content in your book, just for the titillation of that title. You're on some, that's a million dollars. But here's what I'll see though. But here's the thing that I'll see. And here's where I think this rule is really valuable. What I'll see people do, they've written zombie or on the moon. Okay. They finished it. They've got, you know, like a couple drafts into it. It's, you know, done. What I'll see. And now at this point, they should kindly would say, send out zombie words on the moon to publishers but people will say no I've got to polish zombie words on the moon but okay but see this is, is okay I gotta interrupt but just let me you gotta be Robert you gotta be Heinlein but here's producing the, the amount of work at the quality that he was producing it in order to have the conviction to say that's done off you go okay. remember that he's composing this is what I used to think, this is what I used to think Greg. no 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 yes. There's a difference. You, sir, are spoiled by your word processor. You have to remember that in the time that Heinlein is finishing a manuscript on a freaking typewriter, the level of care that went into producing that finished draft is inexorably more pronounced than any effort you've ever put in on your word processor. So this is what people will say. People will make that argument. They'll say, of course, nowadays you would have to do more revision. Than you I do. Have. You do. Because but, if you're... But, if, do you, but Gregory, Gregory... If you couldn't erase a single sentence... No, I'm going to rant for a second. Let me Let's rant imagine, first. Imagine this, though, Gregory. Imagine you've written Zombie Orders on the Moon. You have written it. You have... Paul, it's not like a total disaster. It's I'm going to be so rich. Shape. It's in good shape. It's, you know, there's no spelling errors, whatever. It's, it's, it's maybe not perfect. <laughs> well, if I wrote it's it, shape, that's not okay? true. Well, yes, but so at this point, Gregory, is there some future version, a more polished version of Zombie Orders on the Moon that somebody would accept? They'll take it or they won't take it. They want to publish Zombie Orders on the Moon or they don't want to publish Zombie Orders on the Moon. Does that make, there's no publisher that's like, well, you know, if this Zombie Orders on the Moon is 10% better, I would publish it. Okay, now... <laughs> Do you understand? Okay, so what you're doing, though, is you have to establish that. Um, it's like, okay, we're right back to our cooking analogy, and it's funny because I am not a good cook. But the boiling point of water is set. Yes. Right? This is a perfect analogy. Okay, now, Heinlein, in your previous example... Here is a person who is used to routinely writing and putting out stories and fragments of stories that are boiling hot. Many writers barely get lukewarm, and there's nothing cooking. Once it's boiling hot, you can't make it hotter. I agree with that. Right. Because it's form and function, right? A A magazine publisher that's looking, that would actually, you know, in the ancient days of magazines and publications through magazines, a magazine that was going to publish zombie orgies on the moon um, would hear that title, and if it delivered partially on that promise, you'd be off to the races because they know what they want, and you've hit the mark. 
The difference, though, is that in genre publication, um, form and function are more tightly wound. For example, if I tell you that this is a science fiction story, and there, then you know what kind of tropes that you should expect. If I tell you this is a science fiction story on a spacecraft uh, in another galaxy, science fiction publishers, readers, writers know what tropes are at play. In Candlet, very different. It can be much more widely um, evaluated and so many more opinions are at play and someone might put their finger into that pot and say that's lukewarm and someone else will say that's boiling hot and that's where I think the discrepancy comes from is that if you're not very specific in your target audience then you're going to get different kinds of flavors out of that soup I think the thing that people will do though and I, I found this also when I was doing my PhD I finished my PhD on time as opposed to every other person in the program and the reason uh, for this was one simple reason is because I knew I'm not publishing a book right yeah I'm just defending a PhD thesis well let's that's what I was going to say difference. I would finish a lot more manuscripts if, if instead of publishing them I sat in a room with five people and defended the idea but you've done the same thing. You don't. But what I'm saying is, like, people forget there's a process of publication. So, like, I was saying this to my friend the other day who has a short story book. He's like, I'm like, he's like, well, it's this close. I just need to maybe write two more stories. I said, well, how many stories do you have? He's like, oh, I got you know, twelve stories. It's about you know, fifty thousand words long or whatever. I was like, well, just, but I need to write two more. No, just like, send it out. Yeah, <laughs> like send the manuscript out. Those two stories aren't going to change what the book is. Send it out now, then keep writing the stories. When the publisher, if a publisher takes that manuscript, those two stories won't make the difference between acceptance and rejection of the manuscript. Right? Absolutely. They will take that book or they won't take that book as it is. When they take the book, they're not going to publish it as is. You will have the option. I just did this with my short story that's coming out now. I had a short story that I wanted to finish and put in this book, and I just couldn't get the thing to work. And so what I do? I pulled it out of the book. I think for your listeners or for mine, you should... Now I'm putting it back in because I finally finished it in the meantime. For your listeners or for mine, you should name drop that book. Lightning of Possible Storms is coming out fall 2020 with Book Hug Press. And it literally contains a story that after the book was accepted, uh, I always planned to have in the book, but just could not get to work. Uh, So at some point after the book was accepted, I, I finally got it to work. So then, you know, they come back to me, they're like, oh, hey, you know, you got a new manuscript. Um, we, this is the date we need the final manuscript. Here's your editor. So I sent him the story and I said, you know, let's slot this into the book. And it worked. So we did. It's fine. You know, it, it, it ended up, uh, people forget that, like, the book you send to the publisher is not the book they're going to print. Yeah, I know. There's a whole process. So if you get it 100%, I'm 100% happy with every word on every page. They're still going to fucking change it. Yeah, and they change the layout. Like, you know, when I was working on Automatic Age, because it had illustrations and because I have some experience doing layout and design and book design, I laid out the book myself. Chose oh, I remember. The, chose the fonts, chose the layouts, chose the design elements, did all that kind of stuff. Knowing full well, we had an agreement that another design firm would look at it and do the final layout. Um, but there was a few sort of, for me, deal breakers 
These were not spot illustrations that could be sparsely scattered throughout the book to the whim of a designer. These were specific to a prose that appeared on the page subsequent. So I laid it out so that the breaks, the paragraph breaks, and the page count would allow those illustrations to arrive exactly as I intended them. Kind of like the next paragraph of the story was the illustration. Um, is done when you submitted the book, right? I had 80% of them finished. But you didn't have a final 100% version of it that you're sending to them. No, I'm for sure not. A process. I'll get to do this and this in the process, and those things won't make or break the deal. Well, this is an important thing that, for, for them. that underlines, it underlines the point you're making. The, when I said I want to submit this manuscript to you, and I said it's, you know, it's like this, it has these illustrations, I said, just the prose, please. Just send us that. And I had to explain, well, no, these illustrations are the next beat in that. And they were so used to doing it a certain way that I had to send, in my heart, a completely unfinished manuscript because it was absent the illustrations that added the clarity, the tone, or the emotion. But we were already in the discussion of, this is a book we're going to publish. So I had to accept that those illustrations didn't make or break it. The concept of the automatic age was intact even without those illustrations. And that's what they were trying to prove. Will it stand alone without them? And if so, then it's something we want to publish. Anything I added beyond that point would only elevate the manuscript from their perspective. And that is and very true in what you're saying about these drafts, right? If you get it to the point where it essentially explains your idea, it's boiling water, it's hot. Put your it's finger in there. It's publishable. Yeah, ow, it's publishable, it's boiling hot. Now anything else you add to that mixture just makes it better. But it's got to be boiling hot. And you should add stuff to it. So Highland's you know, saying don't add it except to editorial order. Now, I wouldn't necessarily agree fully with that in the sense that I think you should do things that are not necessarily um, being, you're being told to do. Like, but I, I do think that people you know, should listen to their editors. See, there's like that percentage of things. Like when I get editorial feedback, I'll do most of it, all of it. Then like, I, I did this recently with The Lighting of Possible Storms. So that manuscript comes back from my editor with all these comments. So what I do, my, my process is this. I just accept all without looking at them. Then I read through the manuscript. And I will, if I notice a change has been made uh, and I don't like it, then I'll go and, re like, then I'll, like, rewrite everything I think needs to be Oh, well, that's interesting. See, I... But I won't even notice... So, but I'll instead of like fighting or accepting every single change, I'll just accept them all. I'll assume everything they're saying is right, and just accept it without even looking at what the edit is. But then I'll go closely through every single thing, and if it hits my radar, like oh, that sounds weird. You almost always that's the thing where I don't. The editor has made a suggestion that I should have rejected. I've ended up in the habit of first checking the dialogue, the notes on the dialogue. Uh, particularly because I write stuff that's so heavily influenced by genre that the, the genre of the story is sort of linked to what the people are saying. So if a, if a substantive editor looks at something in the dialogue and is unclear, 
often I can clear up whatever the exposition problem is also, because they're usually linked in those notes, by simply fixing the dialogue first. And then when I go and find those secondary changes later, when I go through and look at the whole thing, I find that I've solved much of the problem. And what I can do is just delete the sentence that had the problem in the exposition. Yeah, I find that a lot, uh, that exact thing. But what's, that, in, what's interesting about that is that, for me, that came out of comics. Right? It's like a reverse engineering, because you don't want to have to change the image. So it's easier to change dialogue than image, and dialogue is connected to character development and motivation. And so if what the character is saying is more clear... Um, then the picture is freer to say what it needs to say. And so I don't have a, um, at least the way I, I hope readers will see my writing, is that the, the prose that leads up to dialogue is telling you something, and the dialogue is telling you something new. It's not a reinforcement of each thing. There's not a Doppler effect, at least I hope not, in my own writing where you just hear the same thing over and over and over again. It's there in the prose, it's there in the dialogue, it's there in the prose, it's there in the dialogue. I'm hoping that those uh, individual, those constituent parts remain separate, providing you with new information. It's partially why I've really enjoyed writing these uh, automatic age stories, uh, is that I am trusting a lot to the reader to figure out the dialogue. And the story's short enough you know, they're just novellas. The story's short enough that if you read it to the end and you are a little bit unclear, the effort of reading it again is very, it's, it's, it's a surmountable threshold, if you will. You know? What, have you ever had problems? Because this is a big problem I used to have, uh, and I still have it to some degree, is the whole, um, you must put your writing on the market. What I will, even today, I, I was just talking to somebody. I've actually gone to the, I'm, I'm now going to hire a person <laughs> to take all my files and figure out what the hell do I even have in this pack of files? Because I have thousands and thousands of things I've written. I don't even know what they are, half of them. I don't even know, like, what I've sent where. Have I sent, I've got thousands of things that I've written and never even sent out. And they're good, and they're fine. Um, I just moved on to the next thing. But, like, I'm trying to get better at, like, the whole of, like, getting the work out there kind of thing. But I know for a lot of... I don't have a big problem with it in the sense of, like, I don't fear rejection. Um, well, again, Heinlein was writing in a time when there was such a thing as a writer's market. That, that's not really the case anymore. Not in the same way. You know, the number of places who will actually publish... Uh, fictional work, uh, you know, it's it's in the it's maybe a thousand places. Um, and when he was writing, there were thousands of places in every country of the world that you could send work to. But right? that premise, though, of you must just you know get your work out, like send it to someone, not just sit on it. Yeah, that's true. I look at it premise. in my own practice. I look at it as. Um, you, you, must, you must share your work with a mentor or a peer as part of your agreement with yourself that you have completed work on it. And so, um, 
you know, I mean, it's, it's easy for me to say, or it was because I have a number of projects either in the process of publication or involved in publication or with the prospect of publication. So I don't fear that I have a way to get work out into the world the way that maybe an early writer says like, Oh, it's easy for you to say, get it out there. Um, what I think it can be a danger is people think Twitter is, uh, the market or they think Facebook is the market or they think, uh, um, a writing forum is the market. Those things aren't the market. Those are, those are places where you grow ideas or gather ideas. Um, those are not the places where you get your work into the world and expect to, uh, reap its rewards. Now I'll clarify. That happened, but it's, it's not the rule. That's right. That's what I'm saying. There are weird exceptions there and there are incredible exceptions to that rule. And those exceptions to the rule are, unfortunately the kind of thing that are that can convince you if you're scouring the internet that it is the way to do it yeah they're high it's it's the high profile outliers that make it seem like you know something you can replicate um and that is not in fact the case the the what they all have in common what all those people the overnight successes quote-unquote or the or the uh, viral hits they were all making work anyway and they were all lucky yeah even if they were working very hard and deserve their luck they nevertheless were lucky there's an element of luck in there you know Bill Gates was one of the only kids in the world who had a computer growing up which was lucky yeah you well I mean? but like, it also just that. Um, it comes out in the aggregate Right, a person who writes every day yeah. is more likely to be published than a person who writes once a year. That's just that's just simple math, right? But a person who writes once a year and sends their book out every day is far more likely to be published than a person who writes every day and only sends out stuff when it's complete. So there are a lot of different ways in which you can adjust the knobs on that frequency in which your work is seen. You could write one novel and send it out every day to a thousand possible places and do that for two or three years, having never written another word, and then be viewed as an overnight success. And we see that once in a while, and people say, like, what's your next book? I haven't decided. And those of us who write all the time think those people are insane. I can't fathom that. It blows my mind. But I, I honestly like I cannot understand that at all. Like, were you not working on something while this thing was? But I know people. I do know people for a fact that I know this is true and a real thing people do. And I don't. I've never understood it. I know people who will work on a book, send the book out, and then just wait to hear back. Yeah, I know lots of people and, who do that also. And, and it, it seems crazy. It's unfathomable to me. But that's because and you... I, I mean, obviously, you can't spin a career that way, but... Yeah, that's because you and I are also workaholics. So people can. Well, here's another thing with the whole Highland idea of it is to also, like, you should let the market decide if stuff is any good. Just send it all out. I don't necessarily agree on that. I, I do agree with that. And when we were doing shows, you know, when the world was open, and we were able to do 25, 30 shows a year that had... You know, any given show had between 5,000 people at it and 150,000 people at it. You know, we did sort of um, uh, local to mid to international shows. 
that market was right there deciding what was good or wasn't good, and we lived or died based on that direct access to the market. Well, now I have a very different scenario going on, and it's, uh, um, it's interesting because I'm more at the behest now of editors, of publishers, of tastemakers who aren't creators, and that's really uh, – it's been an interesting thing. You know, we're looking – it's been essentially, what, 10 weeks that I've been in isolation here. Um, but I'm looking at what is likely to be true of big gatherings like that. Um, we're probably two years away from business as usual or business as it once was. And even then, we're looking at uh, an American population where they will have a period of between six and 12 months where one in five of them have been unemployed. So the, the idea that people will have disposable income for the frivolity that is a book, comic, or graphic novel, well, that's a sobering world to be looking at. It doesn't stop me from writing. Right. Any more than it stopped me in grade seven from doing that flash fiction, because that's not the reason I write. It's more to do with that introspection. It's more to do with the way that I'm trying to work at myself and work at the ideas within me and see if I can make something and then afterwards decide if the market will bear it. It comes back to that Heinlein idea of finishing. Did you finish? If the answer is no, well, you have nothing to contribute to the conversation of the world market. I think what Highland, what people often miss in the, in the last, you know, in the Highland process is it really is a process, one, that he's talking about as if you want to be a professional writer, a person who can make a living writing, or even just can build a career writing, uh, there's this, pl- you have to get to the point where you're, you're trying to, like, sell this writing whether you're selling it directly to a consumer or to an editor or what. And you also have to not take rejection to heart. Like you have to just get in the habit of when you finish a thing, you send it out. When it gets rejected, you send it out again. Um, and it's just you just are doing it by rote process. And it gets, ultimately, it will get accepted or rejected uh, at some point. It'll be accepted or it'll never be accepted. That doesn't necessarily have bearing on its quality. That doesn't necessarily have a bearing on whether you're a good writer or anything like that. But it's a sort of a separate part. While you're writing, you should also have these things, you know, out and about, floating through the world, and not get wrapped up emotionally in acceptance and rejection of it or or, or what have you, um, which is hard to do. But I think like it is very much you know like. A thing that like if you just never sense because I've been guilty of it I, my problem is I don't have a problem with people rejecting me uh, it's, it doesn't bother me at all uh, and I've gone on you know a great length about that elsewhere so I won't get into it here but um, uh, the issue that I personally have is I will just forget <laughs> to send things out or I'll forget I don't have a good process in place for submitting and then resubmitting I don't have any problem with it except for an organizational problem <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. sense. but I know other people will have a real problem with like uh, 
emotionally with the process of getting the work out there. Did you ever have that issue? Like, did you would you ever have a hang up about submitting work or showing it to people? So. Back in my misspent youth when I was working on uh, the very first novel project that I had ever sort of undertaken and agreed with myself, made a pact with myself that I would finish it, um, it was terrifying to share that work. Terrifying. Because I had to decide it was finished and then also wait for feedback. And if we fast forward three or four years, uh, the next couple that I had that I shared uh, with peers or mentors, uh, much less excruciating because I was already working on the next thing. I would break up emotionally with the last project, finish it, be done with it, start something new, fall in love again with the new project. And then people's opinions of the old one really have no bearing on me because I'm already on to something else. And, and often what I would find is that feedback, there's a feedback loop that would occur where uh, someone would say, hey, you know, this novel's all right, but, uh, you know, you really got to work on your dialogue or, oh, you've got some enormous plot holes. If I was already done with that book and I was never going to revisit it and I would kind of finished the exercise of making it, then I would simply evaluate their critique of it in the relationship with the new work. Have I improved my plot problems? Have I focused on those thoughts in my dialogue in this work? And if so, I would then open up a dialogue with that reviewer, that mentor, that peer and say, hey, you're absolutely right. I totally see where those flaws are. Here's my new piece of work. Rather than ask you to read the whole thing, you've just read a whole thing for me. Here's two pages from my current work. Do you think this represents the improvement you're talking about? Do you think this represents more accurately what it is you think is a flaw in the last work? And if that feedback feedback would come back as yes or no, that was way more useful in the new project and way easier on the ego because you had finished. If I had been doing more of the Heinlein thing, I would have a, a bigger stack of rejections before I would get that feedback um, into my writing process. But I was also young and had other, you know, had other things I was doing. So it wasn't as important to me. Um, it was more important to me to keep that writing flow going than it was to, say, have that novel finished and perfect. Yeah, and I, I feel like I kind of went the other route to a great degree. Like I, I, I was trying to make everything perfect, and I kept getting spun up in my perfectionism. And I kind of, I mean, I'm still a perfectionist. I just have like management <laughs> coping mechanisms. No, I think, uh, I think I have to like actually finish things and get stuff out. No, see, I think I observe that the difference between you and I is that your, your actual finished product as a writer is much better than mine. I'm used to being kind of all right. And so occasionally when it's a little bit better than average, I can be like, Hey, great. And I can be proud of myself and move on. Whereas I think that your uh, writing process is a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more careful and a little bit more well-crafted. And so I think your self-criticism is much higher as a, as a result of that. Well, it has its strengths and its weaknesses. So if my, you know, I can, you know, if you pick up my book and read it, there are no mistakes. Right. Well, here's the difference, maybe. But I am I sure written another, written another book instead of having no mistakes in that book. See, maybe it's like, <laughs> yeah, right? 
Maybe there's, that's the difference. Maybe there's also that's the strength and weakness of it. There's also a difference, perhaps, in this that when I'm finished, I know I did my best. When you're finished, you're pretty sure it could be better. No, when I'm finished, it is dead to me. <laughs> it, it is perfect and dead to me. That's the difference. Oh, yeah. I never want to. I won't read it again unless you pay me. Literally, you have to pay me to read one page of that book again. That's amazing. Um, but there's I, nothing on that page that needs to change. See, um, I was talking to uh, Negan Sinclair on an episode of Super Pulp Science about uh, the nature of stories and the Anishinaabe way of crafting a story and why um, there's such... And I'm paraphrasing now. You should hear it in his own words. But um, why there is a reluctance to allow recordings or, or transcripts of oral histories is because a story is supposed to evolve each time it is told. And I, I definitely agree with that as both a creator and a listener. Um, there have been people who have been at readings of mine who, when I'm doing a reading out loud from a work, they'll notice and I'll see them like literally like look up in horror, say from the copy that they're looking at, that I've changed a phrase, a sentence, a tone, uh, added a completely new sentence or changed a a uh, bit of punctuation to reflect a new idea that is present with me as the author in that moment, divorced from the written text. Um, and I wish there was some way that documents could be more alive in that way. And, you know, I read, I look through Automatic Age Now, and I see, I read it out loud. You know, I was doing a reading on the CBC, and there were parts of it that I changed even then as I was preparing for that reading that were uh, more accurately reflected where I was as a writer in that moment. Um, and books are time capsules in a way, but they also get this, uh, uh, they get a bad, they have this bad habit of becoming canon. Yeah. Uh, of, a, of a writer's thought, like that if they wrote a thing, you know, like everyone will quote Frank Herbert's Dune, and excerpts from it as if that's the way he always thought all the time. Well, no, that is the way he thought while he was writing that one particular manuscript. And he wrote, gosh, I don't know, a hundred books, maybe more. And so it has to, it has to evolve. So, and people's criticism of your work is also going to evolve because people don't look at things as they are. They look at it. They don't look at the work as it is. They look at it as they are. Yeah, it's a, I just feel like um, your approach, you know, is it's got an obvious um, strength over my approach insofar as um, it allows you to be just more productive. And it's you're still producing high quality work because I've seen you go over things like with automatic age, for example. Like I saw versions of that. Uh, like yeah, version. yeah, there were many iterations. And you can of that. see you're doing, you know, making massive improvements, making massive changes. You know, it's not that there's there's no shoddiness to your approach. Interestingly, uh, though, uh, what you're just saying, all those drafts you saw were after it had been selected for publication, after yeah. I had a book deal. So it's a, it exactly. it underlines your point that the book was already what it was. 
before yeah, I had to finish like it. what it is. Yeah, just yeah, making like, it more. I like feel it. like that's the way that like editing, and, and you're doing it with a deadline now, so that it isn't an interminable process. Right, because you're going to edit until you can't anymore, and then that's what it is. The difference between you and me, I think, is uh, just in that process. So, like, you know, you've got your proof coming to you now. What I will do, I don't know what you would do differently, but what I will do is this. I will ask the publisher, when do you need the final version? When do you need this proof back? When do you need the final version? And they'll say to me, I don't know, we need it in three weeks. So, fine, for that three weeks, I will just go over that proof 20, 30, 40 times. <laughs> I'll reread, reread, reread the whole book, rewrite, you know, the thing till it's, you know, apps. Like I, I will just keep going over it and over it and over it and just be like super perfectionist about it. And then once that deadline hits, I won't look at it again ever. And I don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know I, mean? I wish I could have that level of conviction to go over the same. Once it's not it, really good because in that in those three weeks though I won't do anything else I won't make any more money <laughs> I won't get anything else done fair enough you know that I don't have to do for some reason I'll just be I'm in that thing and it's you know it, it's got its strengths and its weaknesses and it's uh, it's a it's a thing that makes it hard for me from a career perspective but I think my point of view on it is it pays off for me because I feel satisfied as much as I'm going to feel satisfied and I feel like I've done everything I could do and I don't ever have to worry about it again and it gets it like and for me like those are things I just need to get out of my head and like that's how I get it out of my head in a manner of speaking but it's like I think you just prefer to have the thing in your head like <laughs> you maybe like the story to be alive in your head more than I do I want it out of my head fair enough yeah I've room for a lot of stories in my head I you know but it's because you're still getting it to a high-quality position. You're just doing it in a different process where it's still alive to you and you're not trying to pummel it to death. No, like I'm trying to pummel it to death. Yeah, there's a way. You can you can over-sharpen a sword, for sure. Yeah, and I, I that's why I have to set limits on it because otherwise I would be pulling, blowing deadlines. I would be pulling books from publishers. I'd be doing all these things uh, that, you know, like when Politics and Knives was accepted, the version that was accepted for publication Half of it I threw in the garbage and rewrote from scratch in the editorial process. Oh, that's wild. Hmm. But I like that uh, book. That's a good book. But it's a, it, the way it works, it, it, it only, my process only works if you put a rigid limit on it. <laughs> like past October 2nd, you know, you can never look at it again or whatever. So, you know, it's, um, it's not necessarily the best. And, and until October 2nd, you know, it, I can't do anything else, say. Like, it just has, like, I'm just making that data, but you know what I mean? Like, it has, like, its strength and its weakness insofar as, like, it, it's not like, there's, there's no one way to work. But I think, but like, I think, like, the, the way that works and doesn't, like, blow your deadlines and doesn't, like, ruin, you know, everything in your life is the best, but it still gets, like, stuff going out the door. You know, it's still, when I think about it, it is kind of the Heinlein rule in a manner of speaking. You know, I'm maybe not exactly doing what the editor says, but I'm following the guideline they gave me, like this deadline or whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, an, an interesting an observation that I will make about Highland's rules is similar to the conversation we had at the beginning about sometimes you're making stuff up and sometimes you're following a list of ingredients or a, or a recipe, right? Our conversation has largely been shaped by somebody else's outline. But what we've brought to the outline is 100% our own individual experiences. And so when people are saying, like, this is the one way to write, this is the one way to do it, they have to divorce themselves from the minutia that is being discussed and step out to the framework, uh, to the larger ingredients uh, list, if you will, um, and say, do I have enough of these ingredients to follow the recipe that they're describing. Well, thanks. I, I thanks so much for talking to me about this uh, surprise attack of the podcast. <laughs> and uh, everybody listening, uh, you know, go get the Automatic Age, which is a really uh, wonderful uh, novella with uh, chock full of you know some really great illustrations. What's your throw your little pitch for the automatic age out? Uh, the automatic age. Oh, you mean like my slug line? My yeah. <clears throat> tell you all about it. Um, the automatic age is um, I Robot meets The Walking Dead. Um, it's the story of a uh, perfect utopia of robots and automatic comforts um, that people are not allowed to live in anymore. All those creature comforts uh, turn on them and hunt them to extinction. And a father and son have to find the pieces of their lost relationship amid the wreckage of a crumbling utopia.